Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Charles Ryrie outlined the first part of the book of Romans this way. He wrote Romans chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 20, speaks of God's righteousness, defied by a sinful world. And then he writes Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to chapter 5, verse 21, shows God's righteousness supplied for believing sinners. And then in Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8, the focus is on God's righteousness applied in the lives of the saints. What a wonderful outline. Righteousness defied by a sinful world, supplied for believing sinners, and then a righteousness that's applied in the lives of the saints. This is why this book is such a marvelous book. An incredible book. There are three great facts about justification that Paul will illustrate in this chapter. Number one, justification is by faith and not by works in verses 1 through 8, which we just read. You cannot earn salvation. The price is too high. Number two, justification is by grace, not law in verses 9 through 17. Obedience to the law can't save you. The reason being you will fail. Number three, justification is by resurrection power, not human effort. In verses 18 through 25, no one has the power to bring themselves back to life. So the chapter asks and answers the questions. How are we justified in verses 1 through 8? Is justification dependent upon the law in verses 13 through 17? And when are we justified in verses 17 through 25? The last time we gathered on Sunday, we asked and answered the question, what does justification mean? For those of you who weren't here or are not completely aware of the meaning of the word justification, it's the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ on the basis of the sacrifice and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We might say that justification is a legal act of God where he declares the guilty 
guiltless. So justification, I reminded you, isn't an act. Or it's an act, not a process. There are no degrees of justification. Just like all people are equally lost apart from Christ, all are equally saved in Christ. All are equally justified. And it is God who justifies. And note, God doesn't make us righteous. He declares us righteous. So justification is a judicial act whereby God pronounces a verdict of not guilty. God puts the righteousness of Christ on our record in the place of our sinfulness. And remember, nobody can change the record. And so you can understand, at least in part, why this issue of justification is so important. The Christian reads in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, based on what it says in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, the just shall live by faith. In that single statement, we have a kind of Magna Carta. We have a kind of declaration of independence. We have a kind of constitution all rolled into one. In the place of our sinfulness, we have righteousness. In the in this place of bondage, we have freedom. And so, again, when we think of the other great freedom documents, documents which set forth the principles and privileges of free people... This document sets forth the principles and privileges that you have as a citizen of heaven. And so, for the Christian, justification by faith in Christ alone becomes a pivotal issue. The one issue where all other issues find foundation and strength. You've heard me say often... If you're wrong about Jesus, it doesn't really matter what you're right about. We can add to that statement, if you're wrong about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, it it doesn't matter what kind of works-based righteousness system you come up with, you're going to find yourself in trouble. John Phillips writes, Many claim to believe in salvation by faith, but not in salvation alone. The word alone is the watershed that divides Catholic from Protestant. It's the watchword of the Reformation. The Romanist, for example, believes in salvation by faith but not by faith alone. He believes in the value of the blood of Christ, but not in that blood alone. He accepts the fact that Jesus is the mediator between God and man, but that Jesus isn't the mediator alone. He acknowledges the authority of the scriptures, but not the authority alone. Unquote. So is that true? Have every people in every age been justified by faith alone. For the person who's reading the book of Romans, they're going to ask questions. Well, what about the Old Testament? What about Jewish history? Were people in the Old Testament saved in the same way as people in the New Testament? Paul has already argued that salvation by faith is witnessed in the law and the prophets, but what about Abraham? What about 
David. He is called the father of those who believe. Was Abraham saved by faith? So Paul will further advance his case by illustrating two heroes of the Jewish faith. Look at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Remember, in the religious tradition of the Jews, Abraham is the father and founder of the Hebrew race. In the world of the Jew, they had many heroes, many stars, Great men and women who led them, instructed them. All cultures have heroes. All cultures have men and women who shine in the area of politics or entertainment or athletics or science or technology or leadership. And by the way, you can tell a lot about a nation or an individual When you find out who they place in the category of hero, the Jewish people had stars. Paul now calls two of the brightest lights in Hebrew history to the witness stand to testify of this issue. Sola, fide, or what the reformers called faith alone. The modern state of Israel has minted an amazing, bright silver coin. And on the surface of the silver coin, it's a picture of Abraham. You see him in his robe and his long beard and his staff. And in, on the coin, Abraham is looking up to the sky. And in the sky, there are 21 stars. The coin evokes a question. What does Abraham see as he looks into the night sky? And I wonder, why 21 stars? Why not 19 or 30? And I discovered that the 21 stars stand for 21 centuries. This is interesting to me because the Jewish person who designed the coin was still thinking about time in terms of a messiah. In terms of a Messiah who had come and lived and died and rose from the dead, whether he did it consciously or or unconsciously, he deferred to the fact that 21 centuries have gone by. But the coin is supposed to evoke this question, what does the future hold for the Jewish people? And so, Paul writes, what shall we say about Abraham? Our father, according to the flesh. Do you understand the question itself? Paul is asking the question, what did Abraham discover in his journey on the earth when he walked as a human being? What did he think about God and what did he think about salvation? The key question, what did Abraham find? And remember, many Jews believe that Abraham was righteous because he somehow earned favor with God. Like many people today, they thought that Abraham obtained salvation the old-fashioned way. You earn it. But is that true? Remember, the Jews held Abraham out as the supreme example of the person who pleased God. Also remember, 
that the Jews aren't alone in their honoring of Abraham. Muslims, Christians, consider themselves children of Abraham. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all hold Abraham in a position of honor and bestow upon him the status of prophet of God. So is Abraham an example of someone who worked his way to heaven or was he saved by grace? Was he justified by faith? Look what Paul writes. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So the question that we insist on asking is, well, is it true? Was Abraham justified by faith or was he justified by works? Paul argues if he was justified by works, then he doesn't have a single thing to brag about. Is it even possible? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 9, Paul writes, Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Is there anything in the Bible that suggests that Abraham could boast about being justified by works? Well, someone might suggest, well, wait a minute. Well, what about James chapter 2 verse 21? In James chapter 2 verse 21, doesn't it say that Abraham was justified by works? Well, yes, it does. But the meaning is very different. In James chapter 2, verse 21, James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or complete. So when you read it again, was Abraham our father justified by works? What does he mean? You'll remember that Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. As a matter of fact, that's the very passage that Paul is going to quote. Again, Abraham peers into the black satin of the vast canopy over his head. He looks at the twinkling stars. It was 30 years or more after he was justified or vindicated by works when he offers Isaac as a burnt offering. But it is in Genesis chapter 15 where he looks into heaven and he sees the stars and God says to him, you see those stars? He says, yeah. Can you count them? Not really. Well, just as you see those twinkling stars in the heavens, so is your offspring going to be. You are going to be the father of nations. James refers to this act of obedience, though, in Genesis chapter 22 as an act of vindication or justification The reality of his faith. In other words, MacDonald refers to this as, quote, an outward demonstration that he has been truly justified by faith, unquote. Here's the way we think about it. Paul uses the expression justification in the legal sense. Declared righteous by God. 
James uses the word justified in the sense of an outward observation that can be demonstrated or proved. And that's revealed in the NIV translation in the NLT. In the NIV, it says in James chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. The New, Li- the new Living Translation reads, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do do not by faith alone, unquote. In the entire context of James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, the author is pointing to the fact that real faith, authentic faith, genuine faith, isn't simply invisible and internal, but visible and external. In the very real way that you live out your life by faith. A genuine faith and a genuine salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ will leak out when you step on it. It will spill over into good works. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. The good deeds or good works are the visible demonstration and proof of faith in James 2.18. James argues persuasively that a faith without works is dead or useless or lifeless in James chapter 2 verse 20. James would argue this kind of faith, a faith absent from the way you think or the way you live or the way that you really believe can't be called biblical faith. And so, James' argument is that works are a proof of faith in James chapter 2, verse 18, not the condition of faith. And see, if you don't understand the difference between condition and proof, let me help you. Your works do not put you into the condition of right relationship with God in Christ. God does that. On the basis of what Jesus has done. And so no wonder there are passages throughout the New Testament where we are told, whoever believes in him, John 3.16, Acts 16.31, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. The list could go on and on in Romans 3.28, Romans 4.5, Romans 5.1, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 3.24, Ephesians 1.13, James chapter 2 verse 8. It provides this massive foundation of faith. So for the person who argues that James chapter 2 verse 24 is proof positive that salvation is not by faith alone, we respond, no, it is James' argument that a salvation that does not result in a change of heart and a change of behavior, a change that does not result in good words and obedience to God's word, can hardly be trusted and hardly fall into the category of biblical faith. So James' argument is that works are proof of faith. Again, not the condition of faith. And then Paul writes, For what does the scripture say? Don't overlook that single phrase. For what does the scripture say? Why is even that statement an important statement? 
Because there are people who don't really believe that the Bible is true. There are people who come up to me almost on a daily basis. And they certainly call me on a daily basis. And they say, how can we trust the Bible? How can we know that the scriptures are true? How can we know that the revelation that has been given in the Bible about God, about his character, and about his promises can be trusted? And the simple answer that will usually be the satisfying answer is, Jesus trusted the scriptures. Well, what if he was wrong? Then you have way more to worry about than just your confidence in the scripture. If Jesus was wrong about the scripture, is it possible that he could be wrong about other things? Could it be he was wrong that he came from God? Could it be wrong that he's the satisfying solution to the problem of sin? Jesus knew the scriptures thoroughly, even to the words and verb tenses. He had obviously either memorized vast portions of it or knew it in its entirety. John chapter 7 verse 15. He believed every word of scripture. All the prophecies concerning himself were fulfilled. He believed them beforehand. He believed that he was the actual fulfillment. He believed that the Old Testament was a historical fact. He made it clear that he trusted the Bible's testimony about creation and prophecy and promise in Luke 11:15 in Luke chapter 11 verse 51 Abel's a real person Matthew 24:37 through 29 Noah is mentioned in the flood John 8:56 he cites Abraham Matthew 10:15 Sodom and Gomorrah Luke 17:28 Lot and his wife Matthew 8:11 Isaac and Jacob John 6 manna coming down from heaven John 3:14 a serpent in the wilderness Matthew 12:39 Jonah Matthew 24:15 Daniel and Isaiah he believed the books were written by the men who bear their name he said that Moses wrote the Torah he talks about the law Torah was given by Moses grace and truth came by Jesus Christ Jesus claims that Isaiah wrote both Isaiahs in Mark chapter 7 verse 6, John chapter 12 verse 37. In other words, liberals claim that Isaiah chapter 40 verses 60, chapters 40 through 66 was composed after the fall of Jerusalem by another guy whose name happened to be Isaiah. <laughs> or what they call Deutero-Isaiah. The only real reason for the claim is that a straightforward dating would mean that predictive prophecy was possible and, and liberals don't want predictive prophecy to be a part of their worldview. But does the Bible say that Jonah wrote Jonah in Matthew 12, 39? That Daniel wrote Daniel in Matthew 24, 15? Jesus believed the Old Testament was spoken by God himself. Now, back to the text. What does the scripture say? Look what Paul writes. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Again, God revealed himself, made a promise to Abraham that Abraham would be the father of nations. Abraham believes the Lord 
And God placed in Abraham's account a direct deposit of righteousness. So Paul argues Abraham is saved by faith and justified by faith apart from the law. How can he make make that argument? Because the law is still hundreds of years in the future. It hasn't even been given by Moses yet. And so when Paul writes, accounted, the term comes from the business world of bookkeeping. The word accounted is logizomai or logizomai, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But I pronounce it logizomai. It occurs 11 times in this chapter. It translates to the English verbs account, count, impute. It can also mean calculate. It can also mean add up. The term could even be translated to place in deposit, almost like you would a bank account. If you gave me your bank account number and you said, Gino, will you put $5 into my account? I could probably afford that. If you said, Gino, could you put $1.9 million into my account. I would laugh. I don't have those resources. How do you place into an account a sum that is satisfying for the problem of unbelief or the problem of sin or the problem of separation from God? Paul argues that God places righteousness in the account of Abraham on the basis of faith. And so in verse 4 it says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In this passage, Paul contrasts works and faith in reference to salvation. Paul argues what everyone knows. If you work for wages, should you be paid? If a person enters into a friendship and a relationship with you, or even an employer-employee relationship with you, and says, I want you to come to work for me. And the person says, do you want me to work for you for free? Now, again, if you do work for free, that's your business. But if you say, I actually expect to be paid. And the person who hires you says, I expect to pay you. This shouldn't be rocket science. Paul argues what everyone knows. If you work for wages, you ought to be paid. Again, the principle doesn't apply to salvation. Can you work in such a way that you generate a sufficient amount of currency that God is satisfied? Paul is arguing that's not even possible. The workman doesn't have to bow or grovel or thank their employer for their paycheck, although some of you think so. The paycheck is earned. And so in verse 5 it says, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. This may not come as a shock to you, but it was shocking to the people who read it. 
It should be shocking for the person who grew, who grew up in a religious tradition where you were taught you couldn't possibly be saved by grace through faith. You have to do stuff. You have to go to church and you have to read your Bible and you have to be a good person and you have to give money and you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to do this and you have to do that. Paul argues, no, you cannot earn your salvation. And look what the text says. Read it carefully. But to him who does not work but believes. Remember the book I'm working on, Big Butts of the Bible? This one gets a whole chapter. This one gets a whole chapter devoted to itself. But believes on him. Who justifies the ungodly. Read. Wicked. That's who the ungodly are. The saved person renounces any possibility of earning salvation. The saved person disavows any personal merit or personal goodness. The saved person admits that the sum and the substance of every good work could never fulfill God's righteousness. So when Paul writes, but to him who does not work, who, pray tell, is that? This is the person who believes that God justifies by faith. This is the person who has confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look carefully at his words. But believes on him who justifies the ungodly. That should mean you. That's when you underline the word ungodly. You should be go. You should make a little arrow and, and write the word me. For the person who can't bring themselves to do that, who dares measure themselves by the revelation of God in the Bible, who dares to ask and answer the question, what makes a sinner a sinner? Is it a person who violates God's law and God's character? Is this the person who lies even one time or who steals even one time? Who takes something that doesn't belong to them? Is this a person who lusts in their heart? And how many times do you have to do it before you can qualify under the heading of the ungodly? The Bible says if you break any portion of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. This is the guilty sinner. This is the person who throws himself or herself on the mercy of God. This is the person who argues, I have nothing. To offer God. Except my sinful condition. For the person who offers God. I'm a good person. I'm a better person than most people. I believe and try to live by the golden rule. And I think that I'm good enough to deserve heaven. Then that isn't you. James White in his book. The God who justifies writes. Quote, the believing of which Paul speaks is by the contrast he draws here. A belief that creates no debt, that brings no plea, that makes no offer, strikes no bargain. It is the empty hand of faith. It hides no bribe, makes no effort at earning or 
coercing anything from God. It knows it's bankrupt and it doesn't try to conceal it. All acts of obedience to a law performed so as to gain a right standing with God in any way, shape, or form violate the definition of the faith that brings justification here. The passage slams the door on any and all works salvation schemes that attempt to pay lip service to grace by saying it is necessary but insufficient outside of the addition of some level of human works, unquote. So what does this mean? It must mean that any group... And every group that suggests or demands human merit in the process of salvation is mistaken. But we should go even further and say corrupt. You might think me rude if I use the term damnable. It's a strong word and it's meant to be. Because the person who embraces the view that you're saved by grace plus something that you can add to the pot has now poisoned the well. Roman Catholicism that insists on belief plus merit, cults that insist on belief plus works, man-made religion that will beg and borrow and steal just a little grace, just a little mercy, just a little faith, and then mix them with a concoction of good works, make a kind of man-made religion meatball, Of God and man working together to effect salvation. But I'm telling you right now, you swallow that to meet the ball. It's never going to get a pass to your throat. You're going to choke on it. It's going to kill you. This is why the Bible teaches that grace is all. For nothing. Justification is for the ungodly. It's a matter of grace and not debt. It's received by faith and not works. So over and over and over again, the Old Testament declares that God will punish the wicked and acquit the innocent. So how can we read that? God will punish the wicked and he will not acquit the He will not acquit the wicked. He will punish the wicked. He will acquit the innocent. He will punish the wicked. He will acquit the innocent. He will punish the wicked. He will acquit the innocent. And so the big question should come to your mind. How do I get put in the category of innocent? And the way that you do that. Is by believing God's provision. In the person of Jesus Christ. God saves the ungodly. And so. You see at just the right time. 
When we were powerless, Jesus died for the ungodly. This is exactly what he is going to write in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. And so he now goes to David, the father and founder of the Hebrew royals. Look what it says. Okay, you've convinced me that Abraham was saved by grace. And look what it says in verse 6. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. The next star witness that the attorney Paul calls to the witness stand is David. Was David saved by sola fide? Clearly, David is after the giving of the law. Clearly, David is a thousand years before Jesus. Paul writes, just as David, and the reason why even the very sentence is important, just as David links the experience of Abraham to the experience of David, they are connected. The man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, the happy man is the sinner to whom God reckons righteousness apart Apart from works, by the way, did David ever use those precise words? The answer is no. We'll get to this in just a moment. Paul reminds the Roman readers and the Jews of David's experience of grace and forgiveness. Why does he even have to bring it up? Because we all know about the fiasco with Bathsheba. Paul quotes David's cry in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Verse 8. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. The psalm that he's reading in the Hebrew language reads... Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When Paul reads those words in the book of Psalm, what does he see? What do do, do his rabbinic eyes behold? Paul notices the absence of works. He notices the presence of forgiveness as a matter of God's unmerited and undeserved favor. It's a matter of grace apart from human efforts. Paul quotes a text knowing that there's a very specific word that appears that he wants to use in order to make his point. It's the word impute. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The word means credit, account. The Hebrew word is hasab. It translates In the Septuagint, to the same word he uses earlier, logizomai. That's the Greek translation of the psalm. David has broken at least three of the Ten Commandments. Some people could argue he's broken all of them. 
In a sense, David has failed to love God, clearly with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's clearly failed to love his neighbor. He's coveted his neighbor's wife. He's committed adultery. He's complicit in murder. The Old Testament system of sacrifices made no provision for such blatant premeditated sin. David cries in Psalm 51, 16, and 17, you do not delight in sacrifice or else I would bring them to you or take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David brings exactly what he has. A hopeless case. Hopeless. Hopeless. And David is the recipient of a full and free pardon. Paul wants the reader. To identify with David's hopelessness. To come to the conclusion that just like David, my case is hopeless, tragic, wicked. And by the way, if you're willing to admit that you have a hopeless case apart from Christ, you become a candidate for salvation. Our sinful condition is deep and wicked and tragic. And because it's deep and wicked and tragic, we become the candidates for mercy and grace. F.F. Bruce writes, quote, If we examine the remainder of the psalm to discover the ground on which he's acquitted, it appears that he simply acknowledges his guilt and throws himself on the mercy of God. And the person who says, It can't be that easy. That's exactly how hard it is. Because few people are willing to come to grips with their sinful condition and their circumstances and admit it. But here is the truth. When we acknowledge our guilt and cast ourselves on the mercy of God, we can with David say, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And look, look, read it again. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Let's do the math. Is David calling himself blessed? How dare him? How dare him? Where does he get, get off calling himself blessed? He's a murderer, adulterer. Where does he get off? On the springboard of mercy and grace. That's where he gets off. On a springboard of mercy and grace. Did all of his good deeds and honorable deeds and beautiful poetry and remarkable exploits add enough weight and tip the scales on the mercy of God in David's favor? Could he say, Lord, I wrote Psalm 23. 
I killed a giant when I was a kid. Can't you just sort of push me in the direction of mercy and forgiveness? But he doesn't appeal to his remarkable writings. He doesn't appeal to his beautiful music. He doesn't appeal to his wondrous deeds. It was all of grace. There was no work that could possibly, there's no work that could possibly, there's no work that could possibly atone for David's sin. If you wrote a hundred Psalm 23s, if you killed a thousand giants, would it make his wicked deed right? No. It was all of grace. There was nothing, there was nothing, there was nothing that David could do except believe God's promise about David's son. The father of the Jews, the most famous Jew, and the most loved Jew, were saved by grace through faith. Faith is believing what God says simply because it is God who is saying it. Let me repeat that. Faith is believing what God says simply because it is God who is saying it. Faith is simply believing what God says simply because it is God saying it. And so the Lord says, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There really are only two kinds of religions in the world. The first consists in doing. And the second, in what has been done. Do you realize that all man-made religions can fall into the category of doing, 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 what I'm doing, 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 what I'm doing, 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 And then there's Christianity. What Jesus has done. Every false cult in the end will lead to despair and death and hell. And millions could be saved from a spiritual tragedy if they would just simply believe what it says in Acts 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. If they just simply will do what Paul told the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. D.L. Moody would break the new birth down into six memorable words. Number one, repentance, a change of mind, a new mind about God. Number two, conversion, a change of life, a new life from God. Regeneration, a change of nature, a new heart from God. Justification, a state of nature, or a change of, of, of nature, or actually a change of state, a new standing before God. Adoption, a change a family, a new relationship toward God, sanctification, a change of service, a new condition with God. That's what salvation is. A new mind about God, a new life from God, a new heart from God, a new standing with God, a new relationship with God, a new condition with God. Faith is believing what God says 
simply because God has said it. And so Paul argues, Abraham believed what God said about him. David believed what God said about him. And this is why the Bible gives us such great news. That if we will believe what the Bible has said about us, we can be saved. We can come to him. We can believe in him. We can trust him. We can submit to him. We can allow the presence of grace to inform us and mercy to guide us and faith to affirm the fact that everything he says is true. Oh, but there's way more to the chapter. This is where we have to stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, as we look at the laundry list, Paul gives us two remarkable heroes. But he could just as easily have called Isaac or Jacob or Joseph to the witness stand. He could have made an appeal to Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel. He could have spoke of Elijah and Elisha. But what all men and women in every age have in common was a willingness to hear from God and a willingness to listen to the promise and then a willingness to believe the promise. No wonder on a dark night when Jesus whispered to Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, You must be born again. You must be born from on high. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. Because God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Jesus came so that we could live. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you. That no matter how many books we read, no matter how many church services we attend, no matter how many people we lead to Christ, no matter how many churches we plant, no matter how much goodness we have an opportunity to spread in the world, it will never amount or contribute to the grace and mercy that you've imparted to us in the person of Jesus Christ alone. But Lord, we thank you for the privileges that we have. The privileges of, as, as men and women who can participate in this grand and wonderful adventure of pointing people to Jesus, of telling of his love, of extending the offer of mercy and grace to anyone and reminding them that if they would believe and receive Jesus, that they too would experience forgiveness. And they, like David, could say, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
in Jesus' name.